Yes. I'm so excited on hell. Uh, you are excited. I'm excited. Uh, you are never excited. I, I'm always excited. Uh, well, that was the <laughs> irony of it. That's true. Yeah, I'm excited because we get to live for another 600 million years. So, we are going to be living for 600 million years more. Yep. yep. I didn't know that we were able to live that long, I yes. have to say. No, I mean, so, not us particularly. The galaxy is going to live for another 600 million years. Ah, the galaxy, our Milky Way. Our Milky Way. The annihilation of the Milky Way has been extended by 600 million years by data from the Gaia telescope. We have mentioned Gaia satellite from the European Space Agency before, and we actually have an episode completely dedicated to this fantastic mission. We do, and it saved us. And it is saved, well, it is well, just it, providing more data, um, more, more data. information about yes. the universe. What were the numbers that we were moving around? Uh, wait, wait, before doing that, first, we have to put into context what was going to kill us. The Andromeda Galaxy. Ah, of course, that was the fusion between the Milky Way and the Andromeda Galaxy. Yes. That will happen in the future, eventually, in some moment. I was guessing between three and a half and five billion years from now. Mm-hmm. Well, it was at 3.9 billion years, and now it's been extended to four and a half billion years. Four and a half billion years, okay. okay. That is more or less when the sun will start to die. Yes. So they're going to happen at the same time, so it'll be a very interesting night and daytime sky, although I guess by that time we might not be able to stay on planet Earth. On planet Earth, probably, probably just not. in two, two and a half, I don't know exactly the number, but something like that in an order two, two and a half billion years, it is when it would be not be possible to host life. Well, that's daunting. Yeah, but it's still a long, long way to go. We still have plenty of time. But anyway, that I'm is an excuse for you to do a party. That's right, yeah. And to be excited. We have to do a party, that's Okay, right. well, that is what we always do here in the Skyantist. Of course. Being and excited. And we have more time to make more episodes, so let's get on with this episode. Okay, let's go for it. Hi, I'm Kirsten Banks. And I'm Angel Lopez Sanchez. And, and we, we are, are the Skyantist. Hello and welcome to episode number 22. 22. 22. Nice number. Los yeah. dos patitos. What? <laughs> the two little ducks. Oh. Yes, in a Spanish culture, that is the, the name that we give to the number 22, the two little two, ducks. Two little ducks. That's yes, really two cute. Patitos. Yeah. Ah, so because I'm going to be... Two, two little ducks. It is two, isn't it? Well, you know, I'm going to be 22 this year, so am I going to be two little ducks? I, I cannot. Yeah. <laughs> now no, no, I'm depressed again. <laughs> I for, sometimes I forget how jammed you are and how... <clears throat> anyway. You need to stop mentioning my age. <laughs> oh, no, that, that's okay. Anyway, so let's go to business. Yes, into business. So first thing on the agenda for today's episode is our poll. Now, thank everyone for participating in our poll. We put up a poll on Twitter last episode, with the last episode saying, help us settle an argument. What do you think Ultima Thule looks like? 2014 MU69. Yes, as, as we must keep saying, because we are we are advocates for the International Electrical Union, so we must say the right name. But um, so let's have a look at our data. So we had 57 votes as of when we're looking at it right now. Only, only 50. Only 57. 57. For how long was the poll? It was up for six days. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, well, I was expecting a few more. Perhaps yeah. we didn't do. We should our, have shared it out a bit yeah, more. I a think. bit more. Yeah. That's okay. That's on us. But, so, uh, the results are in. At the top 
choice with 33% is the peanut. The peanut. The peanut. Oh, come on. So not the jelly bean. Not the jelly bean not or BB-8. BB-8. The peanut. Okay. Yes. Well. But tying second is at 30% is the snowman. The snowman. Yeah. And BB-8. BB-8. <laughs> So what happened to your jelly bean? My jelly bean got 7%. <laughs> I'm so sorry about that. Don't cry. Don't cry. That is okay. Hold on. I'm going to find out how many people would have voted. Okay, 7% of 57. Four people. Four people. Including myself. Including yourself. Only four people. So only three other people voted for your option. Okay, well. That Those is... three other people, I love you. <laughs> Thank you for supporting me. Well, in any case... Everyone is wrong. What? Everyone is wrong. It's uh, not a jelly bean. It is not a jelly bean. It is not, not BB-8. BB-8. It is not a peanut and it is anything like that. Because that is going to be my space news today. Oh. Because latest uh, images taken from the new horizon of Ultima Thule 2014 MU69 have shown that they are not two spheres connected together. They are like more like two pancakes. So a pancake and a kind of a not very thick peanut. <laughs> so there's still a peanut in there. <laughs> kind, Somewhat. Ki- kind of. Kind peanut of. So, pancakes. So there are even people saying, hey, now Ultima Thule is, is not looking like BB-8, uh, the rolling droid of Star Wars, but it is more like a spaceship from Star Trek. Of course. Because the flat... Kind of pancake, which will be the main part. The main of the part, which yep. I don't remember now. It, I, I think it is ult- it. Ultima is the big one. And yes, is Ultima, is the, Ultima one. is the big one. That will be more the, the very flat part, kind of a pancake, and the other part will be the body of a very famous Star Trek ship, the Discovery. Or, I don't know. No, or the I'm, Enterprise. Or the Enterprise. I've also yeah. one. I, yeah, you can see that I'm more uh, a Star Wars than, than a Star oh, Trek. And I'm so. more of a Star Trek fan. That is also because I grew up with Star Wars, but it was not a Star Trek in my country in those times. There you go. Anyway. But I feel, I feel, I feel lied to. It's not a snowman or BB-8 or a jelly bean. It's a pancake. I mean, I do like pancakes. Oh, I love them, of course. But I can't believe the luck or the circumstance that they happened to get the first photo happened to be face on. To mm-hmm. see that those two lobes and think that it was actually two spheroids. But that is that, crazy. That is also answering something that we were mentioning in the previous episode, that when uh, the spacecraft was going closer to Ultima Thule, and it should have been changing a bit the brightness because of the rotation, mm. but the rotation axis was more or less pointing towards exactly ah, the right. position where the spacecraft so was. So it's a bit like a clock face. It, it would that. have been only doing something, yeah. Yeah, like, something like that. And that is also where the plane of the two bodies mm-hmm. is located. And the funny part was how they found it, because that was just when um, around 10 minutes after um, New Horizons' uh, closest approach to Ultima Thule, they were taking some few more photos at a distance of around 9,000 kilometers. And from that angle, all that was visible was a thin crescent. Oh. And something like the new moon seen from the Earth, but it was the two lobes of yeah. Ultima Thule. And with only, I think, there were seven, eight, nine photos that they took, they were able to extrapolate that they were not rounded bodies, but very flat bodies. Oh, so they knew this from the start. Yeah, 
So they knew that when they got the data in February, they got those data in February. We also were mentioning that the data were coming slowly to Earth. Yes. So that was an extra limitation. And they will get all the data in, what was that, in September 2020, something like that. So these data were showing that, and it was a surprise to everybody. Wait, so, okay, hold on. Let me get this straight. So they posted a photo of the two lobes that it looked like two round blobby things put together, not a pancake and not a weird peanut attached to a pancake, but they knew it was flat They did. Time. They didn't know that. They knew that from the images that they got in early February. Okay, all right. Not th- at the beginning. I thought so, NASA was trolling no, us. No, 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 <laughs> not at the beginning. Sorry if I didn't explain myself clear. So that was new images that they got to Earth in early February and in just as it is happening now in social media, even <laughs> in research sometime, in just one day or a couple of days after this data arrived to Earth, the team was very surprised and puzzled about that. Mm. And they just made the announcement a couple of days after that. Oh, there you go. Anyway, we have to still to wait for more surprises that might come from of the data as they are coming from New Horizons. So we've got another couple of years to wait, don't we? Yeah, but I will say that the majority of the important things will arrive to Earth in the next few months. That's true. Speaking of things to arrive to Earth in the next few months, or more so in the next few days, so I'm not sure if you guys know, but uh, JPL the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California, have made their final try to reach out to Opportunity. And we're recording this a little bit earlier, but tomorrow, which is the 14th of February, in Australia time at 6am, we will find out if Oppie is no more. I will say that being tomorrow, 14th of February, and that you have already set your alarm to have a look to that. And you have been talking about Opie so much in this show. Mm. And even though your space news have been some few times about that, you're in love with this rover, I would say. Yes, yes. I'd, I'd like to formally apologize to my boyfriend. But uh, yeah, no, I, I'm waking up for Opie on Valentine's Day. Not you. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. You need to find out if Opie's okay. Yeah, well, uh, people in NASA already know. I know. So the few comments that I have read in Twitter today are not very encouraging. At Proba- least we'll have closure. Probably when you are hearing this in a week time, you will know what had happened to Opie and that. We would have already shared it out. And unfortunately, they will say Opie is no more. Mm, I hope not. I still have a little bit of hope, but yep, that's probably going to be. The results. Let's wait My for tomorrow. Set. My alarm is set. I will find out. It'll be the first thing I tweet tomorrow morning on the on Valentine's Day. Oh, gosh. Okay, well, um, after the space news and having a bit of the feedback of the poll that we had uh, for last episode, we are going to jump into the theme of this episode. Yes. And perhaps to know, or you should have known, that... Monday 11th of February, it is the International Day of Women and Girls in Science. And uh, congratulations and happy anniversary for you. No, thank you. And I have to say that it is a very important moment of the year that plenty of people, women and also men, myself included, are trying to provide visibility to the wonderful women in science that are doing amazing things, amazing job, amazing discoveries. And that is still not easy for them to try to 
to do it with because of society and rules and what you should expect mm. of a woman whatever should be doing which i think it is you know we should have been moving away from that um just a personal comment that i'm thinking about that right now at the moment last saturday my son was invited to a birthday party of a six-year-old girl we went to buy a gift for her and it was my son and it was coming from him that he decided to buy her a book about space and another book about women in not in science but what any kind of job you can do that is for you and that i was so sweet i was very happy to see that so particularly because well they have been ah let's go to buy a doll or the typical paintings or whatever and luke was saying you seen that ruby likes astronomy a lot because she has been asking me also a bit some few things mm -hmm. about astronomy so why don't we get this I actually sent a tweet about that. Yeah. That is the way, really, that is the way that we have to pursue, in the sense that the little ones are doing these kind of things by default. Mm. So it is just embedded inside them. That's right. Change the paradigm of thinking. And I just want to say, you've raised that boy very well. Uh, I'm, I'm, try I'm trying to. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to. I'm trying to. Sorry for the extra personal comment. We have decided that we are going to be talking about uh, Harvard's computers today. Yes, and not the computers you may think, computers that sit on a desk and do things. The uh, old computers, which were the women in the observatories, actually counting stars and doing all sorts of other things like that. So we're going to be talking about a few select, very important women in astronomy. We did mention a few in our similar episode we had last year, for the International Day of Women and Girls in Science. But we're going to bring it up again because this is a very important conversation to have and to really celebrate the role of women in science and the diversity from having women in science as well. Shall we get going? Yes, let's go. Just start with it. Excellent. So, Harvard computers, obviously, you would assume they come from Harvard University. Yep, so the Harvard that, Observatory. That was established in 1839 mm -hmm. by Harvard Corporation at Tanner House. Yes, and under the direction of Edward Charles Pickering, he had a number of women working as skilled workers to, to process astronomical data, which, like I said, counting stars, doing other sorts of stuff, essentially doing what we tell Python to do these days. Exactly. That, that is what computers were mm. in those times. And the, the name computer that we now use for the computer, it is still coming from that. That's I didn't know that. That's incredible. Yeah, I mean, no, that no, makes no, it sense. is coming from, it came from that. Not always they were women. Yeah. But for many jobs, not only for Harvard Observatory, for NASA too. Mm. They have been women because well, for, for whatever reason, it was a cheaper kind of task force. Yes. Doing I mean, exactly the same kind of job. Exactly. Male astronomers, they didn't want to do. Male astronomers were just interested in, okay, let's go to go and get the data, get the observation during the night. And well, the, the, the telescope jockeys. Yeah, the, the, the calculations were just something not, not difficult to see, but very rudimentary that you have to do plenty of things. And now we have um, the, the computers, <laughs> the real computers are calculations <laughs> or something like that. And you don't have to go to a book and extrapolate the logarithm of the scene of the tan or whenever trigonometrical mm. function that you need for example because it is giving you quickly in, in clicking some few buttons that's right 
So yeah. that was the kind of job that they have to do. And they also have to measure very carefully the position of the stars and the brightness of the stars using photographic plates. Mm -hmm. Using the photographic plates were taken with telescopes. But these computers, they were using microscopes uh -huh. to have a careful look to these photographic plates to estimate what I said, uh, the position of the stars and also the magnitude of the stars. Yes, I like to say, because at Sydney Observatory we had similar things. We had female computers who did the grunt work of astronomy, as I like to say. And uh, the men, they were the telescope jockeys. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. interesting name. So it was in 1877 when uh, Edward Charles Pickering takes the office. He will become the fourth director. And he was very much focused in trying to understand stellar photometry. I'm going to remind everyone that in this moment that we are talking about the late 19th century, the majority of astronomers were much more interested of how objects, where they were located, how they were moving, particularly objects in the solar system, mm. and starting to think a bit about the photometry, I mean, the amount of light that they, these objects are emitting, in order that they can try to start understanding a bit better the physics behind the, uh, the stars. Although it will not be photometry the key thing to unveil the physics of the stars. No. But... It's a good start. But, I mean, it will be spectroscopy. Yes. But we will go there in a moment. Ironically, two years after that, Edward Pickering hired a maid for his house, Williamina Fleming. She was a Scottish. Well, she will become one of the most important female astronomers, I would say, of the computers mm. at Harvard's computers, at Harvard Observatory. So Williamina Fleming uh, had no prior relation to Harvard because, as you said, she was a Scottish immigrant, actually. Mm. So she worked as, her, as Pickering's housemaid, first off, and uh, her first assignment was to improve an existing catalogue of stellar spectra. In 1881, she becomes a permanent member of the observatory staff. And she was starting to measure and compute stellar magnitude from photographs, but also to try to understand the spectra of the mm. stars. And she was apparently the curator of the photographic plates. Yes, yes, that happened later. But before than that, something very important happened. In 1886, Anna Palmer Draper was a very healthy widow of the former Henry Draper. Henry Draper, he was a doctor but a passionate about astronomy. And he had this kind of the sense of a amateur astronomer. And he was starting to play with something that it was very uncommon in those times, which was spectroscopy. Yes. To try to do a bit of a spectroscopy. Looking at the composition of stars. Yes. So it, the spectroscopy it is the technique that allows to, in some way, break of the light of the stars into the rainbow, mm. into all the rainbows. And within those rainbows, it is when we are going to find features in a star's absorption majoritarily, sometimes also in emission, we see nebula and galaxies. Codifying this rainbow in the spectrum of these stars, it is when we are finding the key features that allow astrophysics to understand the physical and chemical properties of the different objects, the stars, galaxies, nebula, and whatever. Mm. Anna Palmer Draper, after her husband died, was very sad that he was not able to continue doing that, but as they had a lot of money, 
she proposed Edward Pickering to fund photography of Festellar spectra and getting us a spectroscopy with the aim of realizing this dream of her husband. Oh, isn't that sweet? Yeah, it's very sweet. And that was funding for a lot of time the work of particularly these women. Mm. And do you want to know how much they actually earned how per much? hour? How much? They earned a whopping 25 and 50 cents per hour. Okay, well, correct by inflation? <laughs> correct by inflation. <laughs> probably was, it was more than a factory worker, but less than a clerical one. Okay, well. Mm. So, uh, minimum wage. Continuing a bit of the chronology of the computers at Hadbar, in 1888, Antonia Maury joins the staff of female computers, and she was very, very important for this analysis. Antonia Maury was the one who redesigned the system of classification of stars. So she, she was kind of like the forefront of the, like classifying stars in different categories. Was but, she? Yes, yes, but she created a very complex classification of stars. Mm. And that is why it was a kind of a controversy between Antonia Maury, also William Minia Fleming, and Annie, Annie Cannon. Annie Cannon. Yes, because she end- came up with the one that we use commonly today, the OBAFGKM, a few others added on to the end, system. Exactly. I don't want to forget that Antonia Maury was actually the niece of Henry Draper. Ah. And that was one of the reasons why uh, she joined the observatory. She from, had connections. Yeah, because she had the recommendation from Annie Palmer Draper. So Annie Cannon was one of the more famous computers of the group because she was the first female scientist to be recognized for many awards and titles in her field of study. Good on Annie. Yeah, uh, she joined the observatory in 1896, first as a research assistant, and she was really much into analyzing the spectra of very bright stars. Mm. Mainly stars from the southern hemisphere, because in that moment they were mainly analyzing the data obtained with a new telescope in Arequipa, in Peru. But before than that, in 1890, Williaminia Fleming, she had already published a first catalog of stellar spectra, the Draper Catalog Spectra, with the classification that she had been militarily doing. And in 1895, she discovered uh, the Nova Carinae, which was actually her second Nova, again using photographs and data taken from Arequipa. So continuing with that, in 1897, Antonia Maury published the Spectra of Bright Stars. So we are seeing here that they are just analyzing and trying to get a sense of what the stellar spectra are and publishing as they go. So there will be several publications during the years just trying to get a bit of a sense of what the stellar spectra are and how to classify stars. They did good jobs. Yeah, for sure. In that moment, it was when the three of them, Williaminia Fleming, Antonia Maury and Annie Jam Cannon, were discussing what is the best way of classifying stars. Ah, yes. Having a heated debate. At the end, it was, as you mentioned before, the idea that Annie Cannon had about this nomenclature O-B-A-F-G-K-M, the one that have the most acceptance. And it was so that uh, later, I think it was in 1922, the International Astronomical Union adopted that classification which at the end was taking into consideration all the hard work that Wilhelmina Fleming, Antonia Maury, and particularly Annie Jam Cannon were doing at Harvard Observatory. Mm. 
I want also to insist in something else. Imagine right now an astronomer that is analyzing stellar spectra and in total this person analyzes 350,000 stellar spectra. 350,000 stars? Yes. By themselves? By, by one single person. Right, okay. So that is more than one-third million yes. stars. Well, that was the number of stars that Annie Cannon analyzed in her life. Wow! I can see right now Kirsten completely with the mouth open, surprised. Like, like my jaw is on the floor. You didn't know that. That is insane. It is insane. And she was so good that she was able to classify a star by memory, just looking at the feature, the spectral what? features, one star every 20 seconds or so, and always being right. What? That's better than some computers. Yes, for sure. That's better than some neural networks. Wow, that's incredible. The main legacy from Amy Cannon will be analyzing so many stars, the spectroscopy properties of stars, and designing the spectral classification that we astronomers are still using now, with mm -hmm. just little variation, adding new stellar types and of so course. on. And that was so important for astrophysics in the 20th century in order to understand stellar evolution and galaxy evolution. Mm. And everything is on top of this person. That she was half deaf oh. and she has some problems sometimes communicating, but she was really, really good just getting her microscope, going into the photographic plates that were having the stellar spectra mm. and analyzing all of that and saying this star is... And O5, the other one is uh, F2, something wow. like that. It was really amazing. What a woman. What a woman. What a woman. Although another woman we should mention that I know we both know and love to talk about is Cecilia Payne. Yes, yeah, Cecilia Payne. And she also had some great work with stars, especially the sun. Not only the sun, but the stars in general, I will say. So that will happen in the 1920s, when in 19, actually 1923, Cecilia Payne arrived to Harvard. She wanted to do a PhD thesis in astronomy, but uh, in the UK, women in that time were not allowed to pursue a PhD. That's right. We mentioned a lot about her in, in the, our episode in, in the a previous year ago. Episode, but I think it is very convenient we say this again, just in case, because a very important part of the job that Cecilia Payne did was based on the data and the classification that Annie Cannon established mm. of the stellar spectra. Because still, in that moment, they didn't know why that classification of a star was in that way. How some stars were having some features, other stars having different features, some of them having very prominent, for example, hydrogen, absorption lines of helium, others have plenty of other elements. And the same way the colors of the stars. Some stars are blue, some stars are red, some stars um, are in, in between. between. In between. There are green stars that we don't see them green because they are white for us. But Wait, what? 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 They are green stars, but for us they are white, but they should be green. 
they're actually green stars. They should be green, but to our eyes, they are white. Because the peak of the mission, it is in our green color, but yes. they are having the tails that are also in the blue in, and in the red are more or less the same. So when you combine the three colors, of it is white. We get white. <gasps> There's actually green stars. Yep. My my mind is blown. They should be, but we don't see them. And in the photographic plates, we don't see them green. So they should be, but they are not. They are white because of combination of factors. Anyway, so coming back to Cecilia Payne. So she was also clever enough to use the new ideas about quantum mechanics to apply that to stars, to stellar atmospheres. And that was when she was the very first person in the world to realize that stars are made majoritarily of hydrogen and helium. Mm. And she was able to explain that to any canon, say, the classification that you invented, O-B-A-F-G-K-M, mm -hmm. that is actually a classification in stellar temperature. Yes. From, from the hottest, the O star, to the coolest, mm. the M, N stars. Yes. And that was the very first time written in her PhD dissertation, Stellar Atmospheres, in 1925. That many times when I'm giving public talks or talking to students, I like to emphasize this because I didn't know till some few years ago. Mm. So that really was the birth of the astrophysics as we understand now, mm. because it was using physics to explain the stars. Astrophysics. Astrophysics. Oh, Not till that moment that we were using just some few parameters and trying to classify things, mm. but without physical laws embedded there. Yeah. And that was a very important step in astronomy. And last but not least, we must also mention Henrietta Leavitt. She arrived at the observatory at Harvard Observatory in 1893. So she classified seven variable stars and came up with the period luminosity relation, which to this day has also been very helpful. No, and, and it was fundamental also in the 20th century. I would like to add a couple of um, numbers there. So in 1908, Henrietta Leavitt published the discovery of 1,777 variable stars in the Magellanic clouds because she was very much focused on analyzing the Magellanic clouds and trying to find uh, the differences in, in brightness, which is what yep. we call variable star, because it is changing periodically in brightness. Mm. And many of these were the cephates, for yes. this kind of stars, that they have a very particular relationship between the luminosity and the way that the changing in brightness is happening, the period of that, mm. in the sense that as we understand, or we think we understand quite good, the absolute brightness of this kind of a star, such a star, that is related to the way that is changing the brightness. If we compare the absolute brightness that we know with the apparent brightness that we see, we can fix the distance. Ah, and yes. we can determine the distance. And that was the way that she used for trying to get an estimation of the distance to the Magellanic clouds. It's awesome. Which was very good, yes. Although still the relationship was not that well established. It was well established, but mm. the fitting parameters because of the properties of these stars were not well known. There were still some few issues there that were not doing that uh, the 
numbers were completely accurate as they are today, let's say that way, because yeah. they're still refining. And of now course. we even are realizing that there are a couple of, depending on exactly how kind of fate it is, you have a relationship or another, or there's a few other second parameters there. The important thing here, it is that later, it was Edwin Hubble who used this relationship, the Henrietta Levy relationship, the Levy laws, to try to get the distance to an Andromeda galaxy. Yes. In, and that was the very first time that it was clearly established, knowing the distance to the Andromeda galaxy, that it was actually a galaxy, because mm. in that moment it was called the Andromeda so the Nebula. Nebula, the yes, ne of the, course. The Nebula in Andromeda. And that would have led to the realization that there are even more galaxies than previously thought out in the universe, which is, of course, exactly. what... Hubble was, Hubble was known for. So this relationship was so important that Henrietta Leavitt was even proposed to get a Nobel Prize in physics for this. Yes. Unfortunately, when uh, some people proposed that, she was already dead. She had died four years before than that. Uh, and the, the, this, it is one rule of the Nobel Prize to cannot... Uh, have to be alive. Yeah, you have to be alive. You cannot give the uh, Nobel Prize for someone who is already there. But it was really, really important because that opened our views of extragalactic distances. Mm. And we still are using Hubble telescope to look for cephates in other galaxies to be able to establish the distance to the other galaxies and to do even cosmology with mm. that, that we are actually doing. And these women were very well esteemed. They won many, many awards, and many awards were also named after them too. In 1925, Annie Cannon was the very first woman to receive the honorary doctorate in science from the Oxford University. Yes, and in stellar atmospheres. In 1931, Annie Cannon received the Draper Medal of the National Academy of Sciences, so of course named after Annie Draper. Annie Draper. Yes. And she was quite advanced to her time. And in 1935, she created an award for distinguishing women in astronomy. So, named after Annie Cannon. Then in 1934, Cecilia Payne wins the Annie Cannon Prize. So it is a quite prestigious award. Mm -hmm. And in 2018, it was given to Ilse Klips, a well-known expert in the study of protoplanetary disks. Ah, Moving on to 1943, Antonia Mori receives the Annie Cannon Prize as well. And finally, in 1956, Cecilia Payne becomes the first woman at Harvard promoted to a full professor, and she is also named the chair of the astronomy department. She was the first woman to be named that the chair was very, very important. of the astronomy department. Like, yeah. How incredible would that be? So, in summary, an amazing group of women in astronomy that perhaps they have not received the proper credit that mm. they deserve. And I will finalize this uh, recommending again, because I'm sure that I did in the last, last, last year, a very nice book by Dava Sobel, The Glass Universe, that I have here. Very nice. Mm. Where the untold history of this woman and some few more is described with huge detail and many surprises and very nice reading 
So I will recommend to everyone to have a look to this, also with plenty of photograph and Excellent. you know a bit of the history about how this happened. And I want to insist, I can't believe that I didn't know that much about this till, let's say, some few years ago, mm. because that is the foundation of astronomy as we now know. Yes. So we are talking about the composition of stars, the classification of stars, the stellar spectra, the distance to stars, the distance to the galaxies, that we are going to do even for uh, cosmology with that. So it is just because of the incredible work that these women did a century ago. We stand on the shoulders of giants, and those shoulders are from women. Yes. Which is fantastic. These are really giant in astronomy, and they should get the proper credit that they deserve, as I said before. So... What an episode. Yeah, yeah. But to finish off, what's up? What's up? What's up? What's up? What's up? Where, where do I have the paper? Where do I... <laughs> let, let me say this. Right now, my desk is full of little pieces of different information about papers, about women in astronomy, about um, what we were talking about the space news and hidden in some place here should be I think it's because I, for, I forgot the name of the object that we were going to be talking under about the, under the book under, under, the, book. The, under the book yeah there it is okay this this, got one, it. <laughs> this one it is so we are going to be talking about m46 yes which i haven't heard of before and i'm excited because it's very cool it's very cool indeed so it is located in the constellation of poppies mm-hmm so that is a bit south, but it's still well visible from the northern hemisphere. Indeed. Particularly still from high. The, yeah, still, still high. It's just, so, just below Canada. So no, no, I remember seeing it very easily from the south of Spain. So perhaps from Germany it will be a bit hard, but definitely anything below 45 degrees latitude north should be relatively easy to see. And it's nice and high right now. Yeah, it is very, very high at the moment. Um, it was discovered by Charles Messier. Of course, being an M object. N, N, M46, also known as NGC 2437. Mm-hmm. Uh, Charles Messier and discovered this object in 1771. And now we know that it is around almost 5,000 light years away. And it has, yeah, it has around 500 stars. The age of this star cluster, it is around 250 million years. It's relatively young. Yeah, it is It is young, but it's time to be dispersed. So mm. the, the outer skirts of the cluster seems to be just starting to run a bit away, mm-hmm. starting to be a bit bold. But what I have always loved in this cluster, although it is not easy to see unless you are in a very in a dark place, it is that it has a planetary nebula in it. Ooh. Is this in, from one of the stars? In the cluster? Actually, no. Ah. <laughs> Actually, it is a projection effect. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> but the planetary nebula, um, it is NGC 2438, which is logical considering the M46, it is NGC 2437, so mm-hmm. it's an extra number. And it is very well seen in the images. I showed you that before. It's very cute. Yeah, very, very, very cute. And that is why one of the reasons why I think it is an interesting object for having a look to it mm-hmm. with a small amateur telescope you will see definitely plenty of stars and you should be able to see the planetary nebula as a little a little blobby thing probably seen if you are in under a dark sky of course 
That's a pretty good WhatsApp then. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think it is. And we can wrap everything here because we have been talking again for some for some time. Well, we've been waiting for planes a lot and that dog at the start. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, yeah, I have to edit a bit of all of that because <laughs> planes have been particularly annoying today. In case you miss it, in the previous episode, just just the 20 last seconds of it, it is the both of us complaining about planes. And my fantastic joke about planes, which I will not repeat here. Because you're going to have to go find it yourselves. Yep. Um, but on top of that, today we have had a dog barking in the distance. And it was appearing very evident in the <laughs> recording. But anyway, for now, you know how to get to us. Twitter, Facebook, Inst uh, no, not Instagram. We should, because some <laughs> people are on Instagram. I, I don't have an Instagram account. I do. Yeah, well, I'm young, young people, I'm not. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> a good point. Um, but... Send us questions as usual. We will answer those questions when we can, when we feel that they are relevant to us. And we will see you in two weeks. Yeah, in two weeks' time, we will record the next episode. And we don't know still what we're going to be talking about, but it will be something, as usual, very interesting. Of course. <laughs> but for now, bye-bye. <laughs> okay, bye-bye. Bad dog. <laughs> <laughs>